0: This is Undisciplined, I'm Matthew Laplante. Just about everyone knows that about 65 million years ago, a very large asteroid struck our planet, sparking a massive die-off that killed a lot of animals on the surface of our planet, most notably the dinosaurs. We tend not to think as much about what this event did to the animals in the ocean, but scientists generally agree that they were adversely affected too, And just as was the case on land, many large predators were soon wiped out of existence. And then all sorts of strange and wonderful newly evolved and evolving animals came crashing into that void. And joining us today to talk about one of those animals, which has quickly become my favorite ancient fish, is Alessio Capobianco. His team's recent paper, published in May in Royal Society Open Science, introduces the world to monosmilus chiroloides, the fearsome, saber-toothed anchovy. Alessio Capobianco, thanks for being here. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for inviting me. When we talk about fossils and discoveries, people generally think about paleontologists like you out digging in the dirt and like praying for a eureka moment when they unearth something which which is amazing but but that's not how you came upon this fish can you talk a little bit about where these two fossils came from
1: yeah that's correct i mean i wasn't doing any field work to discover these fishes they were both just laying around in a cabinet in two different museums So that's how many actually discoveries in paleontology. So for fossils actually happened, just uh, fossils that were collected many, many years ago and just nobody took a look at them. And then somebody just discovers them in a cabinet and they are something new and exciting and wonderful.
0: This is crazy to me. Like one of these fossils had been found in the 1940s, the other in the 1970s. Uh, I I don't know how old you are, but just looking at your photo, it doesn't look like you were even born in the 1970s. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) Both of these things had just been sitting around in boxes or on shelves. Correct. Yes.
1: So the fossil that I took a look more closely to was collected in 1977 in an expedition in Pakistan and that was an expedition led by the University of Michigan Museum of Paleontology and Geological Survey of Pakistan and it just happened that that expedition was focused on mammals and especially whales early whales and so all the fossil fish collected then it still haven't been described up to this day
0: so you said earlier, this is actually happens quite frequently. Are, are there a lot of undescribed fossils out there in museum basements and university boxes just waiting for somebody to go through?
1: Definitely, definitely. It's happening all over the world. And I mean, usually it's the largest and more fleshy fossils that get described first, like the big dinosaurs and things like that. But for people like me, I, I work on fishes and many times they're just underestimated. And there are just not many fish paleontologists working around the world. So you always find something interesting in museum collections.
0: So I assume you found the one that was collected by the University of Michigan first. That's where you're doing your research in, in Michigan. Correct. Um, what drew you to the other one? How did you come to know that there was this other very similar fossil that had been collected 30 years earlier than the one you were looking at?
1: so the other fossil is in the collection of the natural history museum in brussels so in belgium and we were able to like connect the pakistani fossils with the belgian fossil thanks to the work that my advisor matt friedman who is also one of the co-authors on the paper did before so it just happened that he looked at that belgian fossil way before we discovered the fossil at the university of michigan And so once we performed a CT scan, so that's similar to like a CAT scan, computed tomography that you would do in a hospital. We performed a CT scan to the Pakistani fossil at the University of Michigan. And we saw those large teeth. And my advisor thought, wait a second, I saw something similar. And he actually performed years before a CT scan to the Belgian fossil. And that's how we connected the two.
0: And so he just like pulled up the file. And and when you saw these two fish that were separated by thousands of miles of geography that were very, very similar, what was going through your head?
1: Well, so first of all, I mean, it was surprising, not so much surprising, especially for uh, fishes that live in the sea. So marine fishes, it is not uncommon to like find very closely related species very far apart in, in space. Just because, I mean, it's, it's relatively easy to swim around. And especially at that time, climate was much hotter. And so a huge portion of the world was actually tropical in climate. So the climate of Belgium and the climate of Pakistan probably wasn't that different. So it was all tropical seas, more or less.
0: And these were two areas that, I mean, we have to remember, 55 million years ago, the arrangement of our continents were different. Asia and Europe and Africa and India were all separated by bodies of water. So this fish sort of had a a straight shot from Pakistan to Belgium or, or from Belgium to Pakistan.
1: Yes, correct. More or less. There was around, yeah, 50 million years ago, India was still docking into Asia, I would say. So it was close to Asia, but still not completely united to Asia. And there was this large ocean called the Tethys that occupied what is nowadays the Mediterranean plus the Western Indian Ocean. And it basically connected the northern Atlantic with the Indian Ocean directly. So, yeah, that's that was definitely a, an avenue that could have been traveled by marine fishes fairly easily.
0: So let's talk about what these fish look like? Because the artistic renderings are crazy. Can you sort of describe what we would be seeing if we were looking at one of these in the water?
1: Yes. So, I mean, just imagine sort of a fish similar to an anchovy, but whereas anchovies nowadays are something like a few inches long, 10 centimeters long. Imagine a, a very long anchovy, something like more than three feet long, And on top of that, on top of the size, if you look at the mouth of these fishes, they would have very large fangs on their lower jaw and then a single enormous saber tooth just coming down from the top of the mouth all the way down to the lower jaw, basically.
0: How long was this tooth?
1: So this tooth, I mean, in the largest specimen we have, the tooth unfortunately is broken, but we estimate it would be something like uh, Three centimeters or more than an inch long. It doesn't seem much, but let's remember that this is more like more or less 25% of the length of the head of these things. So in proportion, <laughs> is it is a very large tooth.
0: So both of these fossils had this tooth, this single saber tooth, mm-hmm. and this was 55 million years before the invention of canned food. So what was this tooth used for? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, that's a good question unfortunately the specific use of the tooth i think it's still a mystery we can make some hypothesis it is likely that it was used probably for hunting or catching prey we're assuming that these fishes were predators that were hunting other fishes probably smaller fishes and maybe this giant saber tooth was used to like stab or impale its prey but we do not know for sure it could have had other uses we just don't know I have in mind an example. For example, there are some deep-sea fishes nowadays that use large fangs not to stab their prey, but to sort of form a cage within their mouth uh, so that a very small prey cannot escape the mouth once caught. And so maybe that's also the purpose of that saber-tooth plus the large fangs on the lower jaw. But again, we don't know. We have too few specimens, and we don't know how these things really hunted or behaved.
0: In any case, though... It is sort of weird because these days, most fish from the family that anchovies come from, they just eat plankton. They don't have big teeth because they don't need big teeth, let alone sharp fangs or saber-toothed upper teeth. But these ancient fish that you have helped unveil were likely carnivorous predators. Why is that important to know?
1: Yes, so that's a very important piece of the discussion because, as you said, modern anchovies are mostly planktivores. That means that they eat plankton, which is micro, very small organism, either like very small algae or very small crustaceans that are found in the water column. And instead, these ancient saber-toothed anchovies were very likely predatory piscivores, so they ate fishes, other fishes, maybe likely. It is important because anchovies, to be planktivores, they have a sort of uh, modification in their jaws to be able to be more effective in their plankton eating. So for example, they have a very large gape, a very large mouth gape. And that is because if you see some pictures and videos of anchovies feeding, you will see them swimming just with their mouth open. And that's just to make like the intake of water and so of plankton more effective. And now we have these creatures that sort of have also evolved already a large gape, but they're not at all plankton eater because those teeth must have been used to like catch other fishes or something like that. And so it begs the question whether the modification that we see nowadays in the head of the anchovies to have this large gape, whether they evolved in ancestors that ate plankton, like modern anchovies, or whether those ancestors looked more like those saber-tooth anchovies, so they were carnivorous.
0: And the other thing about these things is that they were just so darn big. You said about three feet from tip to tail. What does that tell us, if anything? And, you know, do we have any other examples of fish along this lineage that were that big? Or is this sort of the apex in size that they got over their evolutionary history?
1: So I would say that for anchovies, it's definitely unique like we do not know any anchovy or like close related lineages to anchovy that got this big more than three feet long and it was definitely a surprise to realize that these fishes were related to anchovies like at first we just saw their size we saw their teeth we didn't know exactly what kind of fishes they were and then we looked more in detail into the anatomy and wow we discovered okay these are closely related to anchovies Yeah, so I would say this size is unique to these saber-toothed forms. But as an interesting example, there are other fishes in the larger groups in which anchovies belong. And this group includes other favorite fishing uh, items like herrings, sardines, uh, fish that everybody knows about. And in this larger group, there are still nowadays some larger forms, like a creature called the wolf herring that lives in the Indian Ocean that can get up to three feet in length.
0: What was happening 55 million years ago that would cause a fish from this lineage to grow so big and to grow these big teeth and turn into a predator and have this huge front thing? What was going on in our world at that time?
1: So we cannot know for sure why these creatures evolved. But we certainly have an hypothesis, and you talked about it briefly at the beginning of our discussion. So it's important to put these creatures in their context, in their geological context, in the context of Earth's history. And you said that around 66 million years ago, there was a huge mass extinction that famously wiped out almost all dinosaurs. I say almost all because... Modern birds are also dinosaurs, but this is a small aside. But yeah, uh, apart from that, it killed off many predators and large creatures in the sea, not only large fishes, but also large marine reptiles. And after that, you sort of have like this environment in which you have very few species that survived and they are trying to evolve, trying to like fill out the niches that were left behind by those extinct species. And so it so happened that after, in the 10, 15 million years after the mass extinction, you have the origin and evolution of several groups of fishes that are around nowadays that are like predators. So for example, tunas, mackerels, barracudas, billfishes, or these sort of medium to large-bodied fish predators, they evolved in this time period. And then it is likely that also other groups of fishes that, weren't successful and that didn't survive to the modern days also tried to do the same thing. And anchovies were one of them, apparently, thanks to the discovery. Also anchovies tried to exploit this niche of large predators and evolved these saber-toothed forms, but somehow we don't know why they didn't survive to the
0: modern days. So all of these fish are sort of rushing into this niche and some of them survived at that sort of size range and some of them, like apparently the anchovies... Didn't last very long, but they left behind these fossils for us to find. Correct. So I guess what the takeaway here is that mass extinction events, they don't just wipe out a whole lot of species. They set the stage for something of an evolutionary boom. Correct. They create new
1: opportunities. And that's something that has been really well documented and studied in the terrestrial realm, so on land. So for example, we know very well that after the extinction of dinosaurs, you have mammals trying to like take in their role, I would say, as like the dominating group of animals on land. So mammals before the extinction of dinosaurs were all small or mostly small and have uh, like not diversified into many different ecological roles. And then after the extinction of dinosaurs, they explode into the diversity we see nowadays, For like going from things like elephants to rhinos and then like things like shrews and and mice. And the same sort of thing happened in the sea. Maybe a bit less dramatic, but still, you have most of modern forms of fishes that we see nowadays in the sea evolving during the same time period. And then, apart from that, also some forms that are now completely extinct, and we know about them only thanks to fossils.
0: There was another mass extinction event that really hit large mammals hard about, what, like 10,000 years ago. Are we still in the midst of this sort of echo effect, evolutionary boom that would happen as a result of that? Or have humans sufficiently mucked things up that we're not seeing that we're only seeing the mass extinctions coming from anthropogenic sources?
1: That's a very good question. The extinction that happened around 10,000 years ago is very different from the mass extinction that happened uh, 66 million years ago, because the 10,000 years ago one, probably man already had an impact on that. Man already had a role in causing the extinction of a lot of large mammals, the so-called megafauna, in different continents around that time. And that's like something that, again, happened relatively very recently in geologic time scale. And so I would say that, like, what we are doing right now in terms of what's been called the sixth mass extinction, and so all the extinction that man is causing through either direct hunting or more commonly just anthropogenic activity, I would say that it's almost like the prosecution of that extinction that happened 10,000 years ago. It's still like the effect of man on these creatures. And so, a million years from now, when, I don't know, men maybe will be extinct or there will be something (laughs) else. Maybe like at that that point, there will be a rebound. And so because of this extinction of especially large animals, other new animals will evolve and take on their roles. But we are talking about large geologic timescales, so millions of years. And that's not something that it's likely that we are going to witness firsthand.
0: Whatever survives us will start filling those niches that we eliminated. Correct. That's. I think that's likely, yes. Your team named the newer version of these two fish that are described in your paper after a churl? What, what is a churl? Yes, I'm not even
1: sure how it is correctly pronounced if it's churl or churel, It's an Urdu word and it indicates a, a sort of like vampire-like demon or ghost that's been described in folklore of many different South Asian and South East Asian areas. And it's sort of like this vengeful spirit. And sometimes it's described as having these large fangs or large tusks and being very ugly. And so I thought it was kind of appropriate to use it to name this species.
0: It's totally perfect. Do you remember how you were introduced to this mythical demon? uh to be
1: honest i was just like looking for a cool way to name this fish <laughs> because this, this is the first time i name a new species so i wanted it to be something interesting right and I, I generally like when i see names that are based on mythology or something like that and so i said okay let's try to find something that might be fitting and that was it
0: <laughs> i mean i'm glad you did that because it's not just sort of fun it's important in terms of science communication to have names that people can latch on to and get excited about. It's a small act of science communication that pays big dividends.
1: I agree. I mean, it, the same thing happens whenever like somebody decides to name a new species after pop culture phenomena, like, I don't know, Star Wars or something like that. And you'll see, like, those articles popping up for, like, pop science communication of, like, a new beetle named after Darth Vader or or, or something like that. And there are, like, new beetles named, I don't know what's the rate, but, like, I would say almost every week. But that's only, like, the ones that are named in a really cool name really get to the pop science part and to the scientific communication. So, yeah, I think it's a nice thing to try to have names that attract more the public to this science.
0: You are originally from Cagliari on the southern coast of Sardinia in Italy. Did that proximity to the ocean growing up play into your decision to study prehistoric ocean life? That's a
1: funny question. So I would say honestly, no because I didn't know I was going to end up studying fishes and and fossil fishes in particular. Actually, when I grew up, I just wanted to study dinosaurs, like every kid, I guess. So my dream was always like to become a paleontologist. And I had this thing in mind. And then it just happened that I turned into fishes. But yeah, I I would say it was my first goal in, in life. But it happened. I'm happy it happened because of different random facts of life but I guess that I was always sort of fascinated by the sea in a sense that I always liked like going to the beach and like diving a little bit and seeing all the different fishes and stuff and that's definitely something nice that I like still to do and I don't know maybe subconsciously like made me pursue this line of work in fossil fishes but yeah in general my my dream was just to become a paleontologist and study dinosaurs and then like the opportunity shifted from dinosaurs to fishes, and I embraced it.
0: We mentioned earlier about how in the sea, the distance between modern-day Pakistan and and modern-day Belgium isn't really that great, especially way back when, and that ties into some of your other research, a a question you've been working to answer. How did freshwater fish come to exist on separate continents?
1: First of all, this is, for me, like a, a very interesting topic that i hold dear to my heart it's how i started working on fish evolution and fossil fishes in general so we're looking at freshwater fishes instead of marine fishes and what always fascinated me is that you can find the same kind of fishes the same group of fishes in different continents that nowadays are separated by thousands of miles and by huge bodies of water of salt water like oceans it begs the question, how are these, for example, like if I have the same kind of fish in South America and in Africa, and they live in fresh waters, how did they get there if they're not found in any other continents? I would say that the the answer to this question is complicated, and it depends from case to case. But in general, we can think about two different explanations that you kind of summarized. One is that it was the continental breakup very long ago to sort of strand the same type of fish into two different continents and the other idea is that maybe these fishes weren't freshwater for the whole evolution maybe they became marine at a certain point and i guess that there is also a third idea that's sort of more mystical it seems more mystical magical but it has like some ground of truth and science and that's the idea that Creatures can move from continent to continent seldomly through geologic time thanks to things like floating islands. So like natural rafts that form like rafts of vegetation that can carry a lot of life from like one side to the other of the ocean. And that seems absurd, seems totally absurd, but that's something we know it happened. We fairly surely know it happened for creatures like for example, monkeys. So South American monkeys are closer related to African monkeys and they are too young to have arrived in South America thanks to continental breakup. The continents were already separated at that time. So the current most favored hypothesis is that there was some kind of natural raft of vegetation that just through natural ocean currents transported some lucky monkey survivors (laughs) in South America from Africa. And that's, again, like extremely weird, but it is the best hypothesis we have. And I think that maybe something like that could apply to some groups of fishes as well. Maybe like fishes that can survive in small puddles and they just get transported like in these small puddles in big rafts of uh, vegetation and, and things like that. But again, that's something that's not super common. It didn't happen probably many, many times, but it happened.
0: I love the idea of these little, you know, like floating islands with a little puddle in it and the fish just hanging out there until one day they just crash onto an entirely different continent. Like you said, it, it sounds kind of magical and mystical.
1: Yeah. And again, we do not know for sure. And I, I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. For certain fishes, that's definitely wrong. Like for certain fishes that uh, seem to have this very bizarre distribution in different continents, thanks to fossils. Now we know that in the past, some of them they were marine so they were living in the sea and that's how we explain their geographical distribution so this for example applies to a group of fishes i'm, I'm working a lot on they are called bony tongs and they include things like the arapaima one of the largest freshwater fishes in the amazon or like the arowanas. those are fishes like the asian arowana is a very well-known fish it's sort of a status symbol in china for example and these fishes, even though they are like distributed across many different continents, all the tropical continents, it happens that just after the mass extinction that we talked about, the mass extinction that killed dinosaurs 66 million years ago, they apparently entered the sea and they seem to have just dispersed across different areas of the world. And that might have had a role in their modern distribution in freshwater. So maybe they enter the sea and then re-enter freshwater. And that's a hypothesis I'm working on right now. And there will surely be more work coming up on that.
0: That's Alessio Capobianco. His team's recent study on an ancient saber-toothed anchovy was published in the journal Royal Society Open Science. Alessio, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Matthew, for inviting me. Thanks a lot.
0: undisciplined is a production of utah public radio and if you happen to live in utah you can listen to us every friday at 2 p.m on upr if you miss us then you can listen to every episode of undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts our producer is naomi ward our associate producer is Mia dora our theme music is little idea by benjamin tussaud and i'm matthew laplante thanks for listening now go have big ideas